Say Something's Girl Talk, a place for women to hear and share an encouraging word. Author, radio host, and conference speaker Rebecca Carroll chats about worth, identity, and the roles we play in life. Connect with Rebecca at loveserveshine.com or catch her any weekday on the KCBI 90.9 Morning Show. Thanks for joining the conversation. Here we go. Um, so I, I do a couple different things and I wear a couple different hats and I think Kay described all of them. Um, and what I want to talk to you about tonight has a little bit to do with the hats we wear and more specifically the roles that we play. So the way I tend to work is uh, as someone who works in media, um, in the Christian radio capacity, I also have opportunities to do things like this and share here and there. And the Lord tends to give me some kind of inkling of what I'm going to be talking about about five minutes um, before my deadline. But what I tend to do is I tend to have a fall message and a spring message. And so when Kay said, can you talk about identity and worth, that was very convenient because that's where the Lord has had me swimming the past few months. And in thinking about identity, this is one of those tricky subjects when you're speaking to a group of women. Because we all know the VBS answer, right? Who is our identity rooted in? Christ, okay, Jesus, is what we say when he's up on the flannel graph. And so this is something that we cognitively know. But something that I want to put before you tonight is our behavior betrays our belief. So I'm going to say that one more time. Our behavior betrays our belief. And we tend to be very rooted in our identity when things are going well. I've found that we tend to be a little less rooted, a little less steadfast, a little less secure when God kind of picks up the magic eight ball that we call our world and gives it a couple good shakes. And I've found that as women, we tend to have a couple different crossroads in life that serve as real identity shakers. And I, I've had several. I had one when I, um, when I moved out of the house and started college. You know, because I had always been Beverly and, uh, Beverly and Willie Ashbrook's little girl. Everyone identified me as Willie Ashbrook's daughter. My dad was pretty well known. And so to be out from under that umbrella in a space where no one knew me, no one who my, knew who my family was, I had to find myself and I had to figure out who I was. And then that happened all over again when I graduated college. And all of a sudden, I'm not a student at the University of Kansas anymore, and I'm not really a tridelt anymore. And so now who am I? And so then I did what most of us do. I sought to identify myself through my job, except I couldn't find a job that I really liked. It took me a while to get settled in my career. Strangely enough, I had another identity crisis when I got married. I had been single for 30 years. And so all of a sudden, to be someone's wife, that was a whole shuffling of the deck all over again. And I had to sort out what my identity looked like now as Mike's wife. And then it happened again when I became a mom. And I have seen some of my friends, and some of you have walked this path. It happens again when what? The last baby graduates, right? And all of a sudden, I've had all these chicks in the nest. And, and now, I mean, they're all gone, and they're all self-sufficient, and they don't even call every week. And so, right? And so I'm reading some of your journals. And so now who am I? And now what am I supposed to be doing? And what about divorce? Talk about a foundation shaker. I've been Mrs. So-and-so, so-and-so for so many years that now, I mean, do I even get to keep my name? Now what do I do? 
And then another one that I've noticed recently, I've done, been doing a little bit of research on the correlation between depression and retirement. Retirement is another massive identity crossroads. And so we know that we are daughters of the king and we know that we belong to Christ and our identity is so deeply rooted in him except that our behavior betrays our belief. And so what our behavior is betraying about ourselves is that what we cognitively know has not transferred down to what we inherently believe. Does that make sense? Okay, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to take a look and see what the Bible has to say about it because actually the Bible has quite a bit to say about it. Um, one of the things, you're familiar, I imagine, with the account of Moses at the burning bush. So let's talk about some forks in the road and some crossroad experiences with Moses. Okay, so first of all, he was born to a Jewish family, except that the Pharaoh was killing off all of the Hebrew boy babies. So then his mom puts him in a basket and sends him down the river, and there's little Miriam, his sister, following the basket. And then Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses in the basket, and now all of a sudden, he started out as a Hebrew and was, in fact, by God's lavish grace, probably raised in his own household, nursing from his own mother until he was about five or six, because they just didn't know the beauty of weaning at one year. They, they kept that train going. We won't judge. We won't judge. Um, <laughs> you can judge a little. And so then he went from a Hebrew culture being raised in Pharaoh's house. And then at about 40 years of age, he's having an identity crisis. Why? Because there's something in him that's pulling him toward these Hebrew people. And so in a beautiful episode of foreshadowing and uh, foolishness, he comes down off his throne, leaves the palace, condescends to the people, and he tries to intervene and he tries to be a savior for the Hebrews, but it's not his time yet. And so he ends up killing a man and then getting caught and then fleeing for his life. And then he spends the next 40 years in Midian, married to a Midianite woman, and he goes from wealth in the palace to now he's herding someone else's sheep. And so this man knows what a good, fat, juicy identity crisis looks like. And so then we get to this beautiful moment where God enters his circumstances, God condescends into time, into space, and meets him in what, in what we call a theophany, which is a manifestation of the physical presence of God. And God shows up as a bush, I love this, that is on fire but not consumed, because that is God. He is the self, uh, the, uh, the only one, the self-existent one. We take so much. We need to consume so much to exist. God consumes nothing to exist. And so then this dialogue between the Lord and Moses begins to take place. And what God is doing is what he typically does when he breaks into time and space. He um, gives Moses his plan, and he gives Moses his purpose, his role in the plan. And so what I want to do is I just want to read a few verses. Darn it. Is that okay? Okay. I just want to read a few verses from Moses chapter 3. And this is what the Lord says. How am I doing on time? Okay, we're just going to cut to the chase. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, when you have that many ites. 
It's never going to be good. It's never going to be good. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Here comes the plan. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And then Moses asks the question that all of us wrestle with when we go through one of these fork-in-the-road moments in life, one of these, when we hit one of these crossroads in life. He says, who am I? Who am I that I should go? And there's something really interesting about this passage that I've noticed. Because let's just pretend I'm God, all right? And Kay, I have a, a, because Kay is such a a capable woman and has a lot of Jesus in her, I have a plan for Kay. And and so I say, Kay, this is what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you do this, and then I'm going to have you go here, and then I'm going to have you go here, and I'm going to have you say this. All right? And Kay's going to say, who am I that I should go do this, this, that, and this? And I'm going to say, if I'm God, I'm going to say, what are you talking about, Kay? What do you mean, who are you? Don't you know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? Don't you know that I knitted you together in your mother's womb? Don't you know that there has never been another Kay? There will never be another Kay. I have uniquely gifted you and wired you and equipped you and sent you. I'm going to get all up in your face trying to convince you that you are the girl for the job. I find it very curious that God simply doesn't do that. In fact, it's almost as though God didn't even hear the question. What does he say? Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And so I don't think the question, who am I, is a bad question. I just don't think it's the right question. I think the better question, the right question, is who is God? Who is God? So let's take a look at that, because Scripture has a lot to say about that, too. Let's go back to verse 7. Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into... Okay, so we get the picture. I want you to notice the verbs, okay? In in Bible study, one of the things I encourage women to do is pay very, very close attention to the details. Circle the verbs. What does God say? I have indeed seen. I have heard. I am concerned. I have come down. I will rescue. I will bring. I will send. Who's this about? God or Moses? Who's doing the work? God or Moses? And here's why this would have been so staggering to Moses, okay? I want you to keep in mind that Moses had a working knowledge of God. He had a working knowledge of Yahweh because God introduces himself as I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's not going to say that if that doesn't resonate somehow with um, Moses. But Moses also was raised in Pharaoh's house, and the Egyptians were a paganistic, polytheistic culture. So that means so not Jewish, it's not even funny, and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of gods, Fifteen over 1,500 named gods. And let's talk about polytheism and the way that they thought about deity during this time. Um, so we grew up in the, your own personal Jesus, right? We, we grew up in that culture. We grew up learning about a personal 
personal relationship with Jesus. So that's new. That's relatively new to Christianity. That has never existed before in any kind of religion. The gods were high and exalted and very, very far away and very, very grouchy and a whole lot like people that were a little bit crankier and grumpier with too much power on their hands and far too much time on their hands. They were not terribly interested in people. They certainly weren't interested in a relationship with people. And when you approached the gods, you approached them in great reverence, and you approached them to get something. This was a fear-driven um, religion. It was not a relationship-driven religion. So first of all, for God to meet Moses, to enter time and space, and to meet with Moses, unheard of. And now this is a God who has indeed seen, who has heard, who will come down, who will send, who will rescue, who is concerned. This is a very personal and intimate God. And then one thing I also think is very, very curious is how much God seems to go out of his way to, one, talk about the land, and two, talk about who's occupying it. Let's read that again. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But what's this? The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Okay, so for us, we hear ites, 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 right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what we hear. We hear them. Um, what Moses heard was the Canaanites. The Hittites, I mean, these were cultures that were brutal and bloodthirsty and horrible. God was judging these cultures through the Israelites. So this is interesting to me because, again, let's say Kay's mission is that I am going to send her into the heart of Afghanistan without a bulletproof dress, uh, vest or dress. We could come up with something like that. <laughs> I'm going to send her into the heart of ISIS territory, and I'm going to give her a big Bible labeled clearly in Aramaic so they can read it, and I'm going to set her up with a megaphone and tell her to start shouting the gospel. Okay, so this is kind of how Moses felt. We're all like, that's probably not a... Run it by her husband first. Just all I'm saying is run it by her husband first. So this, this was terrifying. So if I'm presenting this mission to Kay, I'm going to say something like, you're going to go to a yet unreached mission field, and I'm going to send you with a shiny new Bible. Shiny. Brand new. I'm probably not going to go into how awful ISIS is what they do to people, what they do to Christians, what they do to... I'm just going to save that. I'm going to park that and maybe give her a pep talk right before. But isn't it interesting how God seems to go out of his way to draw Moses' attention to the enemy groups that he is going to be um, driving out? It's almost like the more we know God, the less our circumstances should threaten us. So uh, when I was 10 years old, we lived in the Kansas City area, and my parents are totally the opposite of me. They're both very extroverted. I'm just an outgoing introvert. I'm an outgoing introvert. They exist. I'm proof. And so my, my parents were having a party, and they sent me to the store um, with my dad. I went and ran some errands with my dad, and we came out of the last store, and there had been a couple guys uh, either right outside the store or in the store. But what I remember is that we're coming out, and they're following us. And so um, 
my dad puts his arm around me and draws me in close and we keep walking and then one of them says something and so my dad very calmly without blinking just unlocks the car puts me in the car locks the car and turns around and addresses the men i don't remember much i was i was 10 years old but i remember this very vividly okay i was very afraid i was i was very scared you know why because my dad was the biggest, strongest man in the whole world. He ran marathons and he lifted weights. I had two sisters and you know what my dad would do? He would go like this and flex his muscles and squat down low to the ground and he would make two of us grab one arm and one of us would grab the other arm and he'd go and he'd stand up and we would be hanging on his arms. We would be hanging off of his biceps. This was my dad. However, I also had a very no-nonsense mother who was known to get mad at my father, who was just a big goofball. And I was afraid because my dad was going to beat these guys up. And that was going to make us late. And then maybe my dad would get a black eye. And then we were going to get in trouble. And certainly somehow this was going to be my fault. I was scared, but I was not afraid of those guys. I was afraid for them. Why? I knew my dad. I knew my dad. And so what reason did I have to be afraid of two stupid guys? They didn't know my dad. If they had known my dad, they wouldn't have messed with his daughter, right? So it's interesting that, da- that uh, God just never takes the time to answer Moses. But it's not that he never answers that question. He does answer that question. David asks that question too in Psalm 8. And I want to turn there very quickly. You probably know this. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, here it comes, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him, and that word means humanity. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the seas, all that swim the path of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's not that God doesn't want to answer that question. He wants to answer the better question. David got the order right. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above your heavens. When I think of your works, the works of your fingers, once we know God... We can have a proper grasp of who we are, second in rank to the heavenly beings. No earthly creature has been gifted the wisdom, the self-awareness, the image, the imprint of God like we have. And it's so funny because the things that you and I crave and that we long for, we have in him. You just want to be seen. Hagar called God the God who sees me. We just want to be heard. 
God says, I have heard. We just want to know someone cares. I have compassion. That word compassion is so interesting. I'll wrap with this. Um, it comes from the Latin root word compati, which we, we think of compassion and we think I feel sorry for, right? Like I feel so sorry for her. That's just a, a very difficult road she's had to walk. I feel sorry for. That's not compassion in the biblical sense. Compati means to enter in and suffer with. Who are we? Just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Crowned with glory and honor. We don't need to work for validation. We work from validation. We don't need to work for approval. We work from approval. We don't need to work for authority, for we have been given all authority. And we don't even need to strive for victory because we have a Savior who entered in and suffered with and died for and rose again and imparted righteousness. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And that's who we are. That's who we are. You will come to another crossroads. And your behavior will betray your belief. And so speak a better word over yourself. Don't go to God and ask, who am I? Go to God and ask, who are you? Thank you. Thanks again for joining the conversation. We love hanging out with you guys. Want to stay connected? Like or follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Instagram. See you next time on Say Something.